Hello, and welcome to the Engineers Collective, the podcast by New Civil Engineer. Don't forget to hit that subscribe button and share this podcast with your colleagues. It's free to download on all podcast sites, or you can listen at newcivilengineer.com forward slash podcast. The Engineers Collective is powered by Bentley Systems. Around the world, engineers and architects, constructors and owner-operators are using Bentley software solutions to accelerate project delivery and improve asset performance for the infrastructure that sustains our economy and our environment. Together, we are advancing infrastructure. Hello and welcome to the Engineers Collective. I'm Nadine Badu and today I'm joined by my colleague Rob Horgan to discuss the top news stories impacting the industry. Hi there, Rob. Hi Nadine, how are you? Good, thanks. And you? Yeah, not so bad, not so bad. Good. So later on in this episode, New Civil Engineer Editor Claire Smith will be joining me to speak to the ICE's new president, Rachel Skinner, about her plans for the year ahead. But first, let's crack on with some of the major news developments from across the industry. Now, it's fair to say that November has been a pretty busy month. Just a couple of weeks ago, NCE held its first ever virtual conference. The Future of Transport event covered bridges, airports, rail and roads infrastructure, with over 900 attendees from across the industry, all coming together to learn and share ideas. Now, Rob, how did you find it, our very first virtual event? Yeah, it was good, I thought. Um, I think I think we all agree it was a, a success and the feedback we've had has been good from everyone who attended. So I think virtual events are here to stay. Obviously, you miss out on the on the free croissants in the morning and the, the nice lunch in the afternoon. Definitely and, miss that. Yeah, <laughs> and the networking that goes with it. But I think um, it definitely opens up the audience. It's not so London-focused. We obviously had attendees from all over the world tuning in. So... I think that's definitely a big plus, both in terms of attendees and speakers. Actually, we had people from Italy talking about the Mirandi Bridge collapse on the first day, which would have been a lot more difficult had it been a a physical event. So I I think virtual is here to stay, whether it completely replaces um, sort of live do you call them live events? Physical events? What do you call them? Normal events? Physical, yeah. (laughs) Physical events, yeah. I don't think so. I think people want to see each other and people want to meet up and, you know, go for a beer after the conference, which obviously you miss out on um, during these virtual events. But I thought it was good. What about you? Yeah, you're right. I think the the content was just as strong as it's ever been. Um, I mean, I don't want to toot our own trumpet too much, but let's be honest, it was a massive success. But don't just take our word for it. All of the content is available to access on demand. So even if you were a delegate and you missed a few sessions or you just didn't get to join the events at all, there's still time to access everything. Just go to transport.newcivilengineer.com. Now, one of the panel discussions that I chaired at the event included Lower Thames Crossing Executive Director Matt Palmer, who discussed the launch of Highways England's £2 billion tunnelling contract for the project. When appointed, the Mainland Works contractor will be responsible for boring the two 4.2 kilometre long tunnels beneath the River Thames, construction of porter buildings and approach roads, and also the fit out of the tunnelling system, such as ventilation and lighting. But that was just the start of a very big week of announcements for Highways England, wasn't it, Rob? Yes, it was. And um, I'm sure all our listeners will already be aware that the Stonehenge Tunnel has finally been given the green light by Transport Secretary Grant Shapps. Um, It was a case of third time lucky for the scheme, which has been, uh, or a decision on the scheme, sorry, has been delayed twice this year already, firstly due to COVID-19 and then due to an archaeological discovery, uh, which they've now deemed clearly isn't important enough to stop the tunnel. 
However, uh, the decision has already caused quite the backlash due to the sensitivity of the site and its historical significance. Um, on the eve of the decision, a petition uh, rallying against the scheme garnered 150,000 signatories. So the weight of feeling is pretty strong on this one. And, and if I'm honest, looking at it, I can, I can imagine some serious legal battles will, will come, uh, similar to that of, of what's blocked Heathrow's third runway over the years. One of them is, of course, already underway and has been underway before this announcement uh, was made. So that could bring the Stonehenge Tunnel, the Lower Thames Crossing, plus a whole host of other Highways England schemes grinding to a sudden halt. The case being brought by the Transport Action Network, who are actually represented by the same legal team who successfully blocked Heathrow's expansion plans. And the argument for, for blocking, it's not just Stonehenge Tunnel, it's the, the entire RIS2 funding envelope. The argument is the same as what successfully stopped Heathrow's third runway. So I haven't got the dates to hand when that case is due to, to be heard, but it's some point in December. So a decision on that should be with us in the new year. So I guess it's a case of cautious optimism for the road building industry and everyone who's involved in that. Absolutely. Now, I would hate to make a crude segue from one court case to another, but I'm going to do it anyway. So on to HS2's ongoing dispute with Bechtel. Now, I'm sure our listeners will already know Bechtel is seeking damages through the High Court regarding what it deems to be an unfair procurement process in relation to HS2's Old Oak Common Station construction contract. Now, closing statements were delivered earlier this month and a verdict is expected in, I think, January or February 2021. Now, Rob, you've been following the case for some time, haven't you? Yeah, it's, um, it's one that hasn't actually got that much coverage outside of New Civil Engineer, to be honest. It's sort of never caught the imagination of the mainstream media in the same way that perhaps Chris Packham's case against HS2 did. But right. it's sort of chugged along in the background for 18 months or so. Uh, might actually be nearer to two years by now, but um, it all revolves around the procurement of the old Oak Common Station contract. And just to cut a long story short, the uh, the court case is all centred around a sort of mystery meeting between HS2 representatives and its station contract partner, BBVS. Now, HS2 claims that this meeting was held to clarify issues with BBVS's tender submission. However, Bechtel claims that the meeting itself was unlawful. Um, whether it was or wasn't isn't you know, for us to comment or decide upon. But one thing which came out of it or came out in the court case, which was quite interesting, I thought, was the fact that the meeting was, was not minuted and there were no official notes taken, which, uh, which raises another issue around the project, around transparency. Um, which is not, to be fair, it's not just an issue with HS2, it's an issue with all major projects and an issue with the construction sector generally, which moves me along quite nicely to the use of gagging orders or non-disclosure agreements, if I, uh, if I too can make a crude segue. So just last week, uh, NCE revealed the names of 253 companies and public bodies that have signed these agreements with HS2 LTD. Um, they include dozens of councils, pretty much every contractor and consultant on the project, as well as a number of charities such as Historic England and The Lottery. Yeah, I mean, to be fair, it's not just HS2 using these NDAs, is it? I mean, a lot of major clients use them and I guess contractors feel obliged to sign them. I, I guess 
I mean, I totally understand the motivation behind them. I'm just not convinced that all NDAs are beneficial for the industry, kind of the wider industry. In an ideal world, I think there'd be a lot less secrecy shrouding a lot of these major projects. And I mean, ultimately, there's just that really big concern that it promotes a, a culture of silence that isn't isn't helpful at all. Yeah, that's exactly it. I agree entirely with what you're saying there. And, and just to be clear, no, nobody has forced anyone to sign these agreements. They're, they're entered into mutually. And it seems to have become the sort of done thing within construction and infrastructure. But for us personally, as journalists, the use of NDAs does make it extremely hard to talk about all the good stuff that's happening, because more often than not, we're not actually allowed to write about it um, with everything being so heavily guarded. The news editor on our sister publication, Architects Journal, actually made an interesting observation on Twitter um, in response to the, the HS2 story, and that was that there are no architects on the list of companies to sign NDAs, which I found interesting because I actually think there's more behind that, and it sort of talks to the differences between architecture and engineering, for example, because often as a profession, engineers complain that there's not enough promotion of themselves. There's not enough self-promotion. There's not enough talk about the good work that they're doing. But that problem is practically non-existent in architecture. And I think the heavy use of NDAs and the fear of saying something that might upset a client has, has massively hamstrung the industry from promoting some of the great work it's doing. Absolutely. I've written about a fair few different industries and I've never known such levels of well, what I deem to be unnecessary secrecy, which which seems to lead to problems down the road, not just, you know, for us as journalists wanting to write about something and about promotions. But if you look at Crossrail, for example, most people, I think, if they were being honest, would say they knew that there was problems with it before the delay, the initial delay was announced in August 2018. I mean, I'd only been writing for, for New Civil Engineer for a few months at that point, but people had already told me that there were problems with it and that it might be delayed. But nobody would go on the record. Nobody could provide any proper evidence for it being delayed. And and I think it's it's the almost this culture of fear that's crept in that if you say something, you might break some clause in a contract somewhere. That that culture allows projects to sort of run out of control almost. Absolutely, I agree, Rob. I mean, when a client is happy to talk, there is so much good stuff going on. I mean, we've discussed HS2 quite a bit today, but it's definitely not all doom and gloom. Uh, we've covered a lot of the, the great work that's already going on on site. In the last two issues of NCE, we covered the work to deliver the two Wendover viaducts, which are among 96 bridges and viaducts on the central section package. Uh, the other feature was in our November issue about the preparations ahead of tunnelling, uh, which will begin at the Chilton site. Um, and I think it was one of our most kind of popular stories on our website so far this year which just really reflects how interesting the work is on site yeah exactly and um, without a doubt there's some some great work going on on hs2 and there's some great work to come and hopefully we can get out on site a bit more often and showcase that great work and it's it's actually a relief to read about the work getting underway and seeing the photos of sites being cleared ready for tunnels and the sort of mock-ups of viaducts which will soon become reality so hopefully the good news will flow on that front in the months to come not just on on the first phase of work but with royal ascent for phase 2a also due soon i, I think it's either right at the end of the year or the start of next year that they're they're hoping to get that signed off on and there's actually plenty of government decisions due imminently which could and should hopefully lead to even more good news for the for the industry as we are now in the business end of the year or 
the the much awaited autumn which uh, every decision seems to have been kicked into so we've got the spending review we've got the national infrastructure assessment strategy the environment white paper loads of stuff to look out for i mean by the time we go live with this podcast some of the, some of these strategies and reviews and documents might actually already be out but there's a whole load of stuff waiting to come yeah, definitely. I mean, one thing that has been confirmed is obviously the Prime Minister's green 10-point plan. I mean, it covers everything from uh, public transport, cycling and walking, uh, the jet zero and kind of greener maritime, homes, public buildings, carbon capture, um, innovation and investment. Um, there's a big focus, obviously, on, on energy in terms of offshore and nuclear. And I think that's caught kind of most people's attention, hasn't it? The inclusion of nuclear. I mean, what do you think that will mean, in terms of the the nuclear power industry yeah well at first glance it, it does appear to be a commitment to the nuclear sector however when you look a bit closer it's perhaps not the full throttle commitment that some or us had been expecting and hoping uh in terms of small nuclear reactors which seems to get everyone a bit hot under the collar um there appears to be around a 500 million pound commitment which is far less than the two billion pound that we we've been led to believe would be pledged to fund 16 mini reactors um being developed by rolls-royce in terms of the the big projects you know the big mega infrastructure projects there is there's a similar amount pledged which would suggest that we're we're going to either get one of Sizewell or Wilfer instead of both, um, which could shape up into being an interesting head-to-head. Um, Bechtel are now in talks about acquiring the Wilfer site from Hitachi, who walked away from the project earlier this year. The site has previously been described as the best possible location in the UK for a nuclear project. However, until it has a committed developer, it, it can't move forward, it's sort of stuck in limbo kind of at the moment. Whereas on the other hand, Sizewell C is, is more or less ready to go planning permission dependent of course. EDF is already working on Hinkley and has pledged to transfer the skills and learning across from one project onto the next. So in terms of, I guess it's just how quickly the government wants to wants to get one of these underway. Absolutely. I mean, in terms of the this new 10-point plan, some people across the industry have said that it just doesn't go far enough. We've heard from industry experts who believe the plan kind of lacks real joined-up thinking. Um, one of those people, ICE Director of Policy, Chris Richards, criticised the PM for failing to introduce a road user charge that would cover lost fuel duty revenues as motorists turn to electric vehicles. He also noted that the announcement didn't really spell out what the government's overall plans are for joining up efforts across departments to tackle climate change, which is obviously a huge issue in our journey kind of towards net zero. We also heard from Ramble UK Managing Director Matthew Riley, who echoed a lot of those concerns, saying that the 10-point plan leaves the UK worryingly close to the wire in terms of reaching its 2050 net zero carbon emissions target, which is a real, real concern. Now, there are hopes that the National Infrastructure Strategy and the Energy White Paper will address some of those concerns when they're both published. So we wait with, for, with bated breath for those. Yeah, exactly. Hopefully it will... The, the government will provide the policies to back up this 10-point plan. But as, as mentioned before, this episode is recorded before those announcements were expected to be made, and, and they may well have been made as this podcast goes live. It'll be interesting to see how things develop, but hopefully there'll be more clarity over the weeks and months ahead. Absolutely. Thanks, Rob. 
Now, changing gear slightly, as mentioned earlier, our special guest on this episode of the Engineers Collective is WSP Executive Director Rachel Skinner, who has just been inaugurated as the Institution of Civil Engineers 156th President. Rachel joined me and NCE editor Claire Smith earlier to talk about her new role and her theme for her presidential year. The Engineers Collective is powered by Bentley Systems. With digital technology changing the way the world lives, it's time to apply digital technology on infrastructure projects to close the productivity gap with other industries. Bentley invites you to gauge your organization's progress by taking one of their going digital assessments. Work with a partner you can trust and accelerate your pace if possible by going digital with Bentley at bentley.com forward slash going digital. As mentioned earlier, our special guest on this episode of the Engineers Collective is WSP Executive Director Rachel Skinner, who has just been inaugurated as the Institution of Civil Engineers 156 President. Rachel joined me and NCE editor Claire Smith earlier to talk about her new role and her theme for her presidential year. So until now, Rachel has led a team of over 600 people focusing on the transport sector, where she's worked for 22 years. She was recently invited to become a fellow of the Royal Academy of Engineering and is both a chartered engineer and a chartered transport planner. She was named the Telegraph's inaugural top 50 influential women in engineering in 2016. And then in 2017, she won both the most distinguished winner and best woman in civil engineering at the European Construction and Engineering Awards. In 2019, she was confirmed by the Financial Times as one of the UK's top 100 women in engineering. Rachel has also authored and co-authored influential publications on future mobility and placemaking, digital potential, industry innovation and collaboration. She remains involved with strategic projects for clients across the public and private sectors, including leadership of a fast-growing portfolio of future mobility projects in the UK and overseas. In addition to her new role as president of the Institution of Civil Engineers, Rachel is also a commissioner for the Infrastructure Commission of Scotland and a patron of Women in Transport, having been one of its founding board members. So welcome to the Engineers Collective, Rachel. Thank you very much. Great to be here. Great. So how does it feel to take on the president's role as such a long-standing professional body as the Institution of Civil Engineers, especially as you're, you're only the second woman to hold that position? Yeah, it's it, obviously I'm, I'm, I'm incredibly proud. I'm really pleased to be taking on the role, of course. Um, I think... I mean, from my point of view, it's been a bit of a strange journey because when I set out sort of into the world, having having finished school, university and so on, the, the thought that civil engineering lay ahead of me was something that, that I simply hadn't even considered. So actually, in one sense, it feels like I've been involved with the ICE for a very long time because I have genuinely been actively involved ever since I first got chartered. But in fact, my engagement with the ICE before that was was relatively minor. So, so it's been a, a bit of an interesting journey, really. But no, I, do, I, I, feel, I feel I've worked hard. I've been involved, you know, as I say, ever since I got chartered, which was 2003. Uh, and I, I'm, I'm really pleased and proud to be in the role. I think I'm probably more proud to be the youngest president um, in, in the record books for the ICE than I am to be the second woman. I think that's probably a more important accolade. Oh, just coming on from that, in terms of being the youngest person to ever hold the role, do you think it was quite a, a bold move from the ICE to select a younger person? Um, I think, I guess you could say it was a bold move. I think from my point of view, though, and having having been involved in various discussions over the years in terms of, you know, who might take on the role, not obviously talking about myself, but in terms of other people, um, I, I think it's, I don't think it's to do with age. 
if I'm honest. I, I think it's to do with people who are able to sort of, you know, be clear about what they want to achieve. And I think it's about people who really want to make a difference. And I think it's about energy and appetite for change and so on. So, I mean, I guess some people might look at this and say that the ICE is taking enormous risk. I think I would say I'm looking at this as somebody who has half of my career still in front of me. So actually, I'm also taking a risk because I've got to live with you know, the, the outcome of this year for, for another 20 years beyond this. And, and I really want to be able to look back at this and, and say, you know, I really made the most of this year. I really can see the change that's come about. And I think that's incredibly exciting. So talking about change, you're also the first to take on the role in the middle of a coronavirus pandemic too. How has it affected your role so far and what extra challenges does that bring? <laughs> it's, it's, been, it's been an interesting roller coaster ride in terms of picking this up in, in what became obviously a, you know, the pandemic situation over the course of 2020. So I've known for three and a half odd years that this role would be a thing that I would be stepping up to take on. And obviously, over the years, I've seen people undertake the role. I've seen the kind of the rhythm, if you like, of the presidential year. So I understand sort of how it normally works. And what has obviously unfolded through the whole of 2020 is this realisation that that was not going to be the case this time. And it simply wasn't going to be possible. So Paul Sheffield, as the previous president, set off, if you like, as usual, and then in the middle of his year had to change all of his plans in terms of, you know, whether it's to do with things about being able to travel or whether it's to do with the way that events were run and so on. I feel in some ways, actually, I've had, because of that time just before picking up the role, I have actually had time to think about this and try and figure out how to take advantage of it. I'm always an optimist with these things. I think you have to see the opportunities in, in this kind of thing. So so the first massive opportunity was obviously to, to change the way that the presidential address, the inaugural address event would run. We, we set out thinking that it hopefully would run as usual. We could you know, fill the Great Hall. It became obvious that the number of people we could put in the Great Hall was getting smaller and smaller and smaller as the pandemic sort of uh, took its toll. And, and there was a point in the summer where we realised uh, that it simply wasn't going to be possible or worthwhile, actually, to run the event as normal. So instead, as many of you would have seen, uh, we've ended up making a film and doing a live broadcast um, address, which has gone down incredibly well. It's had some fantastic feedback. And actually, I think the opportunity for the ICE now is to think about whether or not that's the way we should actually do things from now. Because <laughs> I think it was a good change and, and perhaps something that COVID has has kind of forced to some extent, but we've discovered a new way of communicating, which I think is, is as I say, really exciting. Absolutely. And it's, I mean, it's traditional, isn't it, for the new IC president to have a key theme that will be the focus for their 12 months in office. Now, I imagine that many people assume that your focus would be gender equality and diversity, because as we've previously mentioned, you're only the second woman to hold the role. What made you decide against that? <laughs> um, it, it's been a source of amusement to me, if I'm perfectly honest, that people immediately assume that because I am female that I would obviously be concentrating on um, equality diversity inclusion topics like that now I am obviously all for a fully equal diverse and inclusive industry of course I am because it's the environment in which I've grown up and I can see the need for change but my theme was never going to be that it, it was I, I knew right from the beginning that that absolutely would not be the theme because I think personally the best way to show diversity in action, whether it's to do with diverse leadership styles or whether it's to do with just, you know, a more diverse community of civil engineers being out there. The best way to show diversity in action is to show diversity in action. It's not to talk about the need for diversity in action. I think you just have to do it. 
And so I, I feel that just by sort of doing what I am now doing and focusing in on the, on the theme which I have picked, actually that is probably more powerful in terms of sending out a message around equality and diversity and, and so on than if I had simply been talking about that as a topic all year, if that makes sense. Absolutely. Definitely. So can you tell us what your theme's going to be and why it's important to you? Well, I, I can absolutely tell you the theme is, <laughs> there's no going to be about it, uh, the theme is net zero carbon. And that is basically all stemming from uh, the, the massive, urgent crisis that exists on the whole of the planet today, which is all to do with climate change and the fact that infrastructure, so across our different infrastructure sectors, so transport, uh, water, buildings, energy, waste, digital, etc., those infrastructure sectors are now responsible for the vast majority, roughly 70% of the world's carbon emissions. And those carbon emissions, the carbon dioxide that those, those processes, those systems create, they, they are the driving cause of climate change. <laughs> so you cannot get a bigger topic or a more important or a more urgent topic, as far as I'm concerned, than, than this particular one, which is, which is why I've chosen it. And and coming from that, I mean, you said you previously mentioned that it was a conversation with your daughter that inspired you to focus on carbon net zero for your year as president. So can you tell us a little bit about how that conversation changed what you do as a family during your daily life? (laughs) Yeah, so so for those who who haven't heard the the very brief version of the story, um, my eldest daughter came home from school a couple of years ago now um, in tears. And it's not a very common occurrence so obviously I asked her what the matter was and it it turned out that rather than some trivial thing that had happened at school that day it was the fact that one of her classmates had been presenting on climate change it was roughly around the time when Greta for example was was you know obviously sort of making some pretty powerful speeches around the world in terms of the need to do something about climate change and and this was essentially the then 11 year old reaction to that problem so uh, to be honest, it, it probably that that was the moment that made me realise that the topic of net zero carbon from a civil engineering point of view was just sat there on a plate and was just perfect in terms of being complex and singular and something that we really a had to do in terms of tackling it as an industry, but secondly, something that we could do and that actually a lot of the action is not that difficult if we just get our act together. Um, so, so it wasn't so much that conversation that changed sort of daily life in a, in a family sense, it was more that that was the moment when I suddenly thought, you know what, that is what I need to concentrate on in terms of my ICE presidential year. In, in terms of home life, I, I think, I mean, to some extent, I mean, I'm, I'm a geographer to begin with. And so I've known about climate change. I've studied elements to do with climate change all the way through my school career and through university and so on. I've always been interested in issues to do with people and communities and the, and the planet and the world around me and how those systems work. So uh, I suppose, you know, to some extent, I've, I've always kind of been on that topic in a broad sense. I mean, I don't know, you take little examples of it. I mean, you know, over the years, as, as we've moved house and so on, we, we were one of the first people to put solar panels on our roof when the, when the very first, um, you know, the government incentives came out. I quite like a bargain as well. I could see that was going to be worthwhile. So, so I was quite keen to do that. Um, we were among the first to, to start to do things like, you know, switch our, our family car to be a fully electric vehicle, not a hybrid, but fully electric, which we did some years ago now. And we're now looking at, at you know, what, what we need to do next in terms of how we, how we move with the times and take advantage of the better technologies that have come through since then. Um, at home, we have no gas. We renovated the house that we live in now um, a couple of years ago, having moved again. 
And um, I decided that we didn't need to have a gas connection. So in fact, we have a heat pump that does all of our heating, hot water, etc. And again, it, it, it gets, it's got a good government incentive. I find driving an EV is incredibly cheap at the moment. <laughs> there is a definite, um, there's, a, there's a cost incentive as well as everything else in all of that. So, so I just quite like the fact that it all fits together, really. I feel like I'm doing the right thing. And I feel like I'm, uh, uh, you know, also, I guess, benefiting from that in a way that anybody could if they just actually looked into it. So the key message that came from your presidential address was asking individuals within the industry about what they were going to do. Can you tell us how you responded to that question in your professional life at work and what you do in your day job? Uh, that, that's a really good question. Uh, the, the reason, as you've, as you've seen in that film and also in, in, the, in the speech that I gave on, on, that, on the day, on, on the inauguration, the, the reason I was really keen to challenge people in terms of that question around, you know, what, what are you going to do? is because it just strikes me that there are hundreds of different actions across all of our infrastructure sectors that everybody could actually do really quite easily in a professional sense in order to start to make a difference. And one of the things that, (laughs) if you talk to my work colleagues actually, one of the things that they will say that I always ask is, is kind of to stand back from whatever the conversation is and to sort of say, right, so what? You know, what, what difference is this actually going to make? What, 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 why are we focusing on this? Are we actually asking ourselves the right question? And I think that's, I suppose, the translation of the, that question into, you know, what are you going to do? It's basically asking a very similar thing. It's challenging people to say, right, if you agree with me that we have an issue here, and if you agree with me that it's urgent, can you now see things that you could all do differently? It doesn't matter whether you're a designer. It doesn't matter whether you're in the middle of, you know, actually you know, the, the construction process itself, it doesn't matter whether you're in charge of operating one of the infrastructure systems or improving it. There are things that everybody can do really quite easily that would make a significant difference in terms of the carbon emissions impacts um, that are associated with the different projects and programmes and indeed the systems that are already out there. So, so I think, as I say, those who know me quite well from a work sort of everyday point of view would know that I'm always the one who is asking that kind of a question. And I'm always the one who is trying to push people in terms of saying, you know, have we really gone as far as we could actually go along this line? And if not, can we, can we do a little bit more? Um, j- just to say a, a little bit more about that in terms of the sort of the, the bigger carbon impact question. One of the things that does frustrate me at the moment is that it feels like everybody has a carbon initiative. Everybody's understood that climate change is the thing we want to do something about. My frustration at the moment is that I am also seeing that in a sort of a, an organisational sense, a business sense, a corporate sense, there are lots and lots of commitments being made towards change. I'm not sure that everybody's really challenged themselves to go as far as they really can at the moment. I think they see the need to make a commitment. But now my challenge to all of them is to say, well, come on, we are in a position to influence here. We are in a position to change things. We are the primary cause of this issue that is you know, unfolding as climate change all over the world, we have to do more than make a set of sort of smallish commitments that really don't make a great deal of difference to the way we actually work every day. We've actually got to change. So I think, uh, you know, I, I guess that's the reason for laying down that challenge. And that's the reason for really trying to encourage people to, to think about what that might look like. And it, that's the way I would hope that my year ahead of me will now unfold is in terms of trying to show people examples and to try and say that, you know, have we thought about this? Have we thought about that? Do you understand what this means? And not meaning that from the point of view of 
trying to say to people, what do you mean you don't understand? But trying to say, look, can I help you to understand? Does that now open the door to doing things differently? Because that's the way we're going to get to real change. And just taking that a step further in terms of that journey towards meeting carbon net zero, what are some of the key issues that you'd really like to see the sector focusing on? So it's complicated, isn't it? Because if if you dig into some of the big facts and stats, what you quickly learn is that the reason for a lot of the carbon emissions that are out there today is it's to, it's, a lot of them are associated with the energy sector because we need that energy in order to do everything from, you know, run the transport system in terms of whether it's cars or, you know, petrol, diesel cars or whether it's to do with rail services or we need we need that energy to do with our buildings and, and you know, heating our homes or, you know, commercial properties, all, all those different things. We understand where all that energy is going to and the risk is that we assume that it's an energy problem. And I think actually the key issues that as a whole set of sectors we need to think about is, okay, let's take transport, let's take buildings, let's take digital, let's take water, waste, etc. All the ones that aren't the energy piece, because what we need to do is bring down the energy demand, so reduce the potential for carbon emissions as quickly as possible across all of those sectors, and we need to decarbonise the energy sectors as well. Because we simply can't go fast enough if we're just waiting for somebody else to do something. And we cannot get to an actual net zero carbon proper balance, like an actual balanced equilibrium point, if we try and keep our carbon emission levels up at the sort of high levels that they're at at the moment. It's just not possible. We don't have the technology available to us to be able to do it. So we have to bring down the carbon emissions by half, probably, in the next 10 years, that, that's the advice from the, the Committee on Climate Change and, and indeed the UN beyond that as well. We have to do that. And the only way we're going to do it is by tackling all of our sectors in terms of their demand for things that generate those carbon emissions, but also in terms of the actual energy that's created as well, because then we can get to a place where the whole thing is just much easier to balance and it actually starts to work. So uh, there's just there's so many things to focus on there. There's so many things. I mean, the design stage everything to do with how we design, the amount of materials we think we need, how we build, right the way through to the operational stage where, you know, we've created these assets, we now have to take some responsibility for the way they actually work and move and run every single day. Because if if we don't do that, we are missing a trick in terms of our ability to, to create change. So with what we're doing at present, do you think the sector will be able to achieve the government's carbon net zero target by 2050? And if not, how far off target are we at the moment? Um, do I think we'll be able to hit net zero by 2050? Well, on the one hand, that's 30 years away. You you would seriously hope so, wouldn't you? The challenge here is the scale of change that's needed is really large. I think it's very tempting, uh, and to home in on a UK perspective particularly, but you could look around the world for similar information. Um, there's some work that the ICE has commissioned in recent months um, that was announced at an event called the Unwin Lecture just a few weeks ago, which showed that between 2010 and 2018, the energy sector in the UK, so where we are actually generating energy, um, we have seen a 23% drop in carbon emissions associated with that broadly speaking with that sector and also some improvements in the waste side of things. So overall, we have actually managed to bring down, in a UK sense, our own carbon emissions by 23% over that time period. Now, that it's very tempting to kind of go, well, that wasn't too bad, was it? That was, that was good. <laughs> you know, we're on the right track. But then you realise 
as I was just saying, that in order to hit a net zero position by 2050, we have to halve those total emissions as they are now, again, in the next 10 years. So this is not a thing we have to wait 25 years to think about, because every year that goes by, our emissions overall globally are actually rising, not falling. This year may be an exception because of COVID, but broadly speaking, the trend is that it's been rising. And so it's obviously not just about the UK either, because in order to hit net zero, the UK hitting net zero is one thing. The world hitting net zero is the challenge. <laughs> and, and obviously the UK is a relatively small geography in the grand scheme of things. And, and obviously there are some far bigger influences out there and far bigger nations out there in terms of these impacts. So, so will, we hit, will the UK hit its target? I, I think we have a decent shot as long as we treat this as a genuinely urgent problem that we actually have to get to grips with now. And I think there's a lot of political interest there. I think, you know, potentially we're going to even see announcements this week in terms of in terms of further commitment to a green recovery and that kind of thing, which is fantastic. And of course, we've had announcements on the financial side of things just last week and so on. That, that's all good. But this isn't just something that we then wait for somebody else to do. We have to do it. You know, from an infrastructure and a civil engineering point of view, we have to take these these challenges to heart because the scale of change is is enormous. <laughs> Absolutely. And so, in your opinion, what are some of the the big barriers for in civil engineering specifically to achieving the carbon net zero target? The biggest barriers to achieving it. If I'm if I'm, I don't think the biggest barriers are, are civil engineering barriers. Actually, I think the biggest barriers right now that I'm beginning to see much more clearly, even in the last fortnight or so, I think the biggest barriers are around people's understanding of what these concepts are and what they actually have to do for the best. I don't come across many people now who suggest that they would like to harm the planet. Well, they, you know what I mean? I, I, I don't, there are some out there who simply don't seem to understand why what they do is relevant to the issue, but I don't come across many people who set out and make it their life's work to cause harm, if you see what I mean. So I think everybody broadly within the civil engineering space is on the side with the idea that if there is something they can do, then they're keen to do it. But then when you say, well, actually, come back to my question to everybody, I suppose, a couple of weeks ago, you know, what are you going to do? I then find that we hit a barrier very quickly in terms of people's actual understanding of the core concepts. So things like, you know, what is net zero carbon? What does climate mitigation mean? Is that the same or is it different to climate adaptation? Now, they are all different concepts. They all relate but unless we can get people to really understand what they actually are and how they relate to each other and why they're all important and you know where these different pieces fit in, I think it's very difficult for people to take action. And therefore, that becomes a really high barrier, actually, because it's almost like you can't start because you don't know if what you're doing is useful. I think it's often difficult for people outside of the industry to make the link between civil engineering infrastructure and carbon emissions beyond the initial construction period. How important is it for civil engineers to be more visible when it comes to reaching a wider audience and helping to achieve the net zero target? Uh, it's absolutely essential. Um, I've, I've talked for years in a, in a more general sense about the need for civil engineers not just to be more visible, but to make sure that we are more relevant and more interesting to the wider world. It's, uh, I, I do understand it. I understand why, you know, we are very proud over the last 200 odd years to have created all these infrastructure systems on which an awful lot of people, billions of people all over the world rely every single day. And when things work seamlessly, it's all good, right? But the problem is 
that we've been creating those infrastructure systems, whether we're talking about transport or, or buildings or, or digital connectivity, it could be any of these things. We've been creating all those things in a way that does cause harm in a wider sense, and particularly from my point of view, in a carbon sense, the fact that building those assets and then operating those assets almost always comes with a carbon emissions cost each and every single day is something that I, I suppose, you know, now that we've, now that we've, it feels that we've started to understand that and we have, it's not, this is not new, I should say. We've known about this for quite a long time. We've known about the link between carbon dioxide and climate change and indeed other greenhouse gases as well. But we've specifically known about the link with carbon dioxide for decades. But now as, as, as an industry, I guess, as a group of sectors, if we are now saying, right, we get it, we see our impact, we see that harm, I think it is now absolutely our responsibility to act in a way where we address that harm as quickly as possible so that we can continue to be proud for the next 200 years of what we now do in terms of continuing to, to shape the world and, and everything else that we are so proud to have done, but to do it in a way where we not only you know, cause no further harm, but we also put right the harm of the past. Absolutely. I, it's utterly critical. Sorry, go on. <laughs> no, no, sorry, Rachel. Absolutely. I mean, as an industry, how can we change what we're doing? Do you think it's the responsibility of the client to lead, the consultant to advise, or the contractor to offer alternatives, or perhaps a combination of all of these things? It's all of them. It's, it's everybody everywhere understanding that they have the ability to influence the decisions and the way that things are done. So, you know, yes, of course, you know, you could even take it wider than that because you could look at the, you know, where the sources of funding come from and, and to what extent do we want those investors, whether they're government or whether it's private sector, they, they should be asking questions, they should be demanding that things are designed and built in a way that doesn't have, you know, this sort of, you know, price tag in a carbon sense against them. But obviously those who are in a position as clients of course, absolutely, they should be leading in a way where equally they are asking the right questions in terms of, you know, have we really done this with, you know, have we thought about the materials that we're specifying? Have we thought about what we're designing? Have we thought about where we're designing it? Are we actually building the right things in the right places? Those questions really matter. At, at the build stage, you know, the contractors, the, there are all sorts of things we can do at the, at the site-based stage to, to, to take out a huge amount of carbon. And, and in the longer run, when we talk about the operational side, and I guess we're back to the clients again largely because they tend to own and operate the infrastructure in some way, shape or form. Have we thought about how we're doing that? Are we calling for the right policy shifts in order to allow those infrastructure systems to decarbonise in the shortest possible time? So everybody has a responsibility. And I, and I think... What I wouldn't do is I, I'm not going to call for, and I, already people are asking me whether I will or not. I, I don't think we should be calling for, you know, a stop to building everything. That, that's not what we're. That's not what this needs to be at all. It just needs to have this conscious consideration of carbon built in all the way through every single process. So, if if you're in a position to challenge others and question others, make sure that challenge is coming through. If you find yourself in a place where you are designing or building or operating something and you can see ways to improve it, we should absolutely be having that conversation. We should be calling it out in the same way that we call out safety issues. We call out diversity issues. We've, we've done it before. We just need to start to call out the carbon related issues, in my view. And, and surely we should all find we're pushing on the same open door. I would hope. 
I guess there's still the question of risk because a lot of discussions around achieving carbon net zero focus on adopting innovation and looking at new technologies and fresh approaches to challenges. How do you think the industry can get that message across effectively, especially when dealing with risk averse clients who are looking at, looking at the cost and the fact they don't want things to go wrong on their project? Sure. And, and it's understandable, isn't it? I mean, all, what we're really talking about is we're building a whole new dimension of risk into the picture, aren't we? Because, of course, all of a sudden we're building climate risk into, into a lot of people's thinking where perhaps it hasn't been. So the first part of my answer, I think, in terms of the pieces around innovation and new technologies, fresh approaches and so on, it, it doesn't actually start with that in, in my head. If we can get to the carbon reduction elements much, much faster, our need for risky technology that is as yet uninvented will reduce. We have existing technologies in terms of, for example, carbon capture and storage, which absolutely has its place and has a role to play in terms of making sure that those processes that we do decide we want to carry on with that do generate carbon dioxide have a way of essentially catching that carbon and making sure it doesn't end up in the atmosphere in the same way that it might otherwise have done. That is absolutely a valid role for some of those technologies to play. But what we also need to do in parallel is, is as I was saying before, to, to bring down the amount of carbon emissions that we're talking about in the, in the system as a whole. And that's going to be very incremental. It's, it's additive. It's little bits everywhere that we need to start to reduce. And if we can start to do that, the whole problem becomes so much easier to solve because we're not dealing with this thing where we've got carbon emissions up at record high levels, which of course we have at the moment. And as I say, they keep on increasing on a global basis. We aren't dealing with the thing that's at the top of the system. We, if we can bring it down, we get to a point where actually we can build in the right technologies, the right innovation, the right approaches to those challenges so that the whole thing is less risky instead of building in additional risk and unknowns and so on, which obviously is a place where nobody wants to be. Absolutely. And so in terms of improving what we're doing in terms of carbon net zero, what new skills do you think we need to bring into the civil engineering sector? And leading on from that, do you feel that civil engineers coming into the sector now need a broader knowledge than you did when you first graduated? So this is where the fact that I wasn't a civil engineering graduate to start with becomes relevant. <laughs> so speaking as a geography graduate to begin with, although I did go back and do a master's that had the, the transport and the, and the engineering pieces in it, I, I feel I came into the industry understanding some of these issues because I had that, that wider sort of education sort of spectrum, I guess, to begin with. I do think it has been the case to now that in terms of the the pure civil engineering sort of teaching, if you like, that perhaps it has to now been a little more narrow than it should be in this respect. I do, however, know that in civil engineering departments across the country at the moment, there is an, an awful lot of interest and change coming through in terms of making sure that topics like this do actually sit in a far more central and pivotal position in terms of why we do the things we do and how we do the things we do in order to avoid causing, as I say, this ongoing harm. So I, I think at the moment that the challenge perhaps is that we have generations of people within the industry, take that as infrastructure as a whole or the civil engineering community within that, we have you know, people with whether it's 10, 20, 30, 40, even 50 years of experience where this is new thinking. And, and so we are going to expect quite a lot of people, I think, in terms of understanding some of those core concepts that I was talking about just a few minutes ago, but it's absolutely essential that we, we can't wait for 30 years for people to come through the system with these new skills. We, we actually just need to pick them up and adopt them and, and, and sort of build them in from now, really. So, 
So I suppose I think one of the biggest challenges will be for those who are in perhaps some of the more senior roles now and very influential roles now to really take the time to get to grips with these issues and figure out how they can make best use of people they do already have in their businesses and organisations who could help them with this. And actually, to some extent, they might like to look at the more junior end of the scale because I suspect they will find people who are already sort of on board with this agenda and very, very keen to take advantage of it. (laughs) So just on the topic of recent graduates, I spent the last week or so interviewing your cohort of future leaders for a future feature that's going to go into the January issue of NCE. And they're certainly all fired up to tackle the carbon net zero theme that you're focusing on. How important is it that we engage more with younger engineers on this topic? It's absolutely critical we engage with, it's not just the younger engineers, it's it's all different sort of ages, I guess, across our industry. But I think it feels to me that we have had a, a generational shift in terms of interest in climate-led issues overall. And, and when I first came into civil engineering 22, 23 years ago, um, I was surrounded by a lot of other people in my sort of age group who were very keen that they they definitely wanted to do good for the world. That they that that's been a message for a very long time, hasn't it? And, and I'm sure you could look upwards from me in terms of you know different age cohorts and so on, and you'd find people who say that's the reason they do what they do because they feel they're making a difference. They feel they're doing good. Now, I guess the challenge I'm laying down here is to say, well, hang on a minute. There's a dimension here we haven't really been thinking about quite hard enough, and it turns out actually that while doing good in terms of creating these infrastructure systems we are in fact also causing harm that we now need to sort out. I think we will find at that younger end that there are a lot of people who've understood that for quite a long time, actually. And they, I've had a lot of people already, and feedback from a lot of people at those more junior levels across our industry, that they are delighted to have this as a theme. They, they totally get it. They don't need you know, to have all this sort of education around the fact that climate change is real and it's, <laughs> it's really urgent and so on. They know that. And they are really keen, I think, to get stuck in and to feel that as a whole industry, we have the ability to kind of pivot and say, right, we're still going to do all the good stuff, but we're going to do it in an even better way now that we see this problem. And I think they are excited, actually, to join in. I think there's a lot of energy there. So, yeah, absolutely. I mean, that, that's that's one of my sort of primary goals, I guess, is how do we how do we harness that and how do we really get that moving fast? And so talking about your goals, I mean, looking ahead, what do you hope to achieve in terms of carbon net zero by the end of your 12 months in office? And how how do you plan to ensure that there is, I guess, a lasting legacy that goes well beyond your year as president? (laughs) Well, what I would love to achieve in the next 12 months is obviously that we we have all this sorted and fixed and so on and, and we can get on with the next challenge. In reality, of course, this is not a one year task. It's just not possible. Um, I think what I am hoping to be able to do, I mean, what does good look like in a, in a year's time? We will be at COP26, exactly, in, in, in November of next year. I would feel really proud, not just of my effort, but of the, the entirety of you know, the industry's effort, if by then we have absolutely inked in the fact that carbon is a, a proper, real you know, sort of beneficial thing that we all need to be thinking about and that people have really started to bring through these exemplars in terms of, hey, look, I had to think about this and I have actually designed that differently. I am actually building this differently. We are beginning to run that system differently. We are going to call for policy change 
from governments, not just here, but you know, all over the world to, to say, we need these changes to happen faster. And we are absolutely standing ready to support on all those different things. That would be an amazing legacy in terms of being able to say, we have really come a long way in just 12 months. And in terms of the piece around a lasting legacy, I mean, I think once we've kind of crossed this kind of carbon divide, it feels like there's no way back because you can't unsee the problem. We can't just pop this climate change thing back in the box and kind of go, oh, well, never mind. You know, Let's get on with something else. Because every year that goes by, it gets more urgent, not less urgent. It's going to cost us more, not less. The risk gets greater, not, not, not you know, it doesn't reduce. So... My, I suppose the lasting legacy is that I would love to see, um, you know, a succession, I guess, of ICE presidents in, ahead of, you know, now who continue on with themes that relate to this. They don't necessarily have to be the same, but certainly relate to this and, and where we embed carbon thinking, net zero carbon thinking, climate thinking, planet thinking, whatever you want to call it, into the, just the way we normally do stuff. Because I think it's it's the only way forward, really. Otherwise, we are con- going to continue to be part of the problem. We're certainly looking forward to reporting on some of the progress in some of our features about the, what projects are doing differently. But if there's one thing that people listening today could do that would help reach that carbon net zero, what one thing would you advise them to do? <sighs> one thing. <laughs> I've given a long list. <laughs> so, so I think that the challenge is to, to go away and really start to engage with some of those core topics I've been talking about really start to understand you know what what are we talking about when we say net zero carbon stop using the words if you don't understand what they mean actually just take five minutes to really think about that and then I guess there's a professional angle and a personal angle for everybody in all of that you know what it is literally what are you going to do I can't decide what you know this person or that person should go and do differently because we've all got different roles we've all got different responsibilities but my goodness me, if thousands of people suddenly had a light bulb moment and realised they were going to go into that meeting tomorrow or go out on site next week and actually ask a different question or just do something differently that actually they know will be beneficial, just think, you know, what we could actually achieve. It's it's pretty terrifying, but very exciting as well. So, so I, I think it's up to people to decide what that one thing is for them. But I think it has to start with that core understanding of what on earth this thing actually is. And, and for that, I would recommend watching a certain film called Shaping Zero, which you can find on the ICE website, because I do try and explain it with a bath analogy. So, <laughs> for those who haven't seen it. <laughs> Absolutely. But I mean, it can be quite tricky, though, can't it? How important is it to find that balance between encouraging people to do their bit to help reach net zero without making them feel that they're being lectured? I would hope just from the way I'm talking now, this isn't about lectures. This isn't about telling people what to do. This is this is about appealing to people's sort of, you know, I guess the fact that they want to stay proud of the profession they're a part of, that they want to feel they're a part of, of what actually could become quite a straightforward, just some grassroots change across our industry in terms of the way we do things. The minute we feel we have to tell people to do it, the minute we have to sort of mandate it, I suspect the benefit and the impact will be less because people will sort of do the minimum required to meet that requirement, that that standard and so on. Um, What would be really exciting is if instead I and others can inspire people to think differently and to realise it doesn't have to cost more, it doesn't have to be more risky, it just means you get better outcomes. I mean, 
there, there is no downside in that respect. So, so I think I think it's more around that positive piece and, and sort of, in, I guess, as I say, encouraging and inspiring people to think differently than it is to come along with a big stick and and sort of mandate and lecture and tell because I just don't think it'll be as effective. I guess it's also about making sure that people feel enabled to ask the questions and say, we, just because we've always done something one way doesn't mean we have to carry on that way. So we've already touched on the fact that climate crisis perhaps wasn't central to your focus until recently and you joined the sector as a geography graduate. I wonder if you could go back and give your 18-year-old self some careers advice. What would you say? <laughs> I think my 12-year-old self genuinely wouldn't, well, probably just fall on the floor if I, <laughs> if I was to tell them quite what lay ahead, but there we go. My 18-year-old self, so, so I was somebody, I, I never had a sort of a, a clear career path mapped out in my mind from the age of five or whatever. I, I was somebody who would always say, I, I don't really know what I want to be when I grow up. I think to some extent I still would say that now. <laughs> um, I think I think what I would say to my sort of, you know, 18, 20 odd year old self is actually just to, to just have a bit of confidence in the ability of, of you know, a handful of people to actually really make change and, and to feel feel you know that that's something that's possible because I think we have a lot of people it's this all over the world doesn't it I guess you know you feel a little bit sort of powerless but actually it's only through sort of thinking and having those ideas and, and daring I guess to kind of float something that's a bit different from time to time that people can get on board with what you're saying and, and say yeah you know what you've got a good point I see it I'm, I'm with you and and that is now what's so exciting and something that I would never have dreamed, aged 18, 19, whatever, that that would be remotely possible. I'd, I'd have, again, probably just fallen on the floor, fallen off my chair. <laughs> <laughs> but what a fantastic opportunity, as we said at the beginning. So, so I mean, that, that's my task now, is, is to make the most of it. Well, congratulations on your new role, and thank you for joining us today. I've really enjoyed hearing more about your plans for the year, and we really look forward to following them over the course of the year in New Civil Engineer. Thank you. Thanks, Rachel. Thanks very much. This podcast is brought to you in association with Bentley Systems. With digital technology changing the way the world lives, it's time to apply digital technology on infrastructure projects to close the productivity gap with other industries. Bentley invites you to gauge your organization's progress by taking one of our going digital assessments. Work with a partner you can trust and accelerate your pace of possible by going digital with Bentley at bentley.com forward slash going hyphen digital hyphen rail.